It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, the international editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show... MIT economist David Orter speaks to Money Talks about his career, including his groundbreaking work on the effect of technology and automation on the American labor market. I consider myself to be just incredibly fortunate, the luckiest person in the profession. I don't have a PhD in economics. <laughs> my PhD is from the Kennedy School in Public Policy. People have taken my work seriously, despite the fact that I came out a bit unwashed. <laughs> and as Sweden goes nearly cashless, will the rest of the world follow suit? Kenya and Bangladesh have developed a very good system, like M-Pesa, some mobile wallets. They've done a great deal at digitizing a few of these payments. But typically in emerging uh, markets, cash remains king. But first, Democratic presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren is known for her strong criticism of Wall Street. She was one of the politicians who called for tougher regulation following the financial crash in 2008. Tonight, she'll be trying to win over more voters in the second Democratic TV debate. In the first, which took place last month, she criticised an economy that she felt was only looking after those at the top. Who is this economy really working for? It's doing great for a thinner and thinner slice at the top. When you've got a government, when you've got an economy that does great for those with money and isn't doing great for everyone else, that is corruption, pure and simple. We need to call it out, we need to attack it head on, and we need to make structural change in our government, in our economy, and in our country. But despite her reputation as a scourge of Wall Street, are some bosses beginning to see her as a viable option in the race to the White House? Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. Hi, Alice. Hello, Simon. Elizabeth Warren hasn't hidden her concerns about the way Wall Street operates. Can you give us a flavour of some of the changes she's wanted to see there? So she's advocated quite a lot of policies that, you know, Wall Street bosses might not like. For example, she's sort of advocated reviving Glass-Steagall, the sort of now defunct law that once segregated commercial banking from investment banking. She's also advocated for private equity firms to have to be responsible for the debt of the companies they acquire, which would scupper their business model. And she has also spent the last decade as a senator complaining that executive pay is too high on Wall Street and that banks don't look after their consumers and famously was one of the key architects of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is an agency that sort of polices bad behaviour at banks. So she's not necessarily seen as a friend of Wall Street. So she's had a bad reputation there generally. I mean, she's been seen as, as a kind of bogey person, hasn't she? Yes, she definitely is one of the political figures that is most potentially vilified by Wall Street. But you think that's beginning to change? 
I think that the Wall Street executives that I've been speaking to recently are very familiar with Elizabeth Warren and all of her policy proposals. And when they look ahead to 2020, she is one of the candidates that seems to be doing reasonably well, that is a sort of reasonably likely nominee. And at the same time, they're sort of evaluating her against the potential opposition, which would be a second term for Trump. And they aren't as afraid of her as you might necessarily assume that they would be. She may not be their worst nightmare. Their sort of biggest problem, their biggest headaches might come if there was a second term for President Trump. Does it break down by Wall Street firm? Are there some firms or types of firm that prefer Warren over others? Most of the people that I spoke to about this uh, declined to be quoted on the record. But I would say the type of firm that seems more in favour of a Warren presidency than others are the sort of large banks that have become very well equipped to dealing with regulation. And so large banks on Wall Street that can handle additional scrutiny are less afraid. Um, The industries that are more afraid are probably, especially lately, the private equity companies, because she's got this very specific proposal to force them to wear the debt of companies they acquire, which would really hurt their business model. The example people use is Toys R Us, that PE deal went wrong and the company's gone bust, but the private equity firm is fine, but but Toys R Us is not. So that's the problem that she's trying to solve there. But they're not going to the stage of giving her money, are they? They're not big campaign contributors to her. Are they going to any Democratic candidate? We've got some early fundraising numbers from the Democratic primary contenders, and she's definitely not their favourite. Early Wall Street dollars are going to Pete Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, um, and to a sort of lesser extent to Cory Booker. Um, They seem to be sort of generating the most buzz from those fundraising numbers. You say that many of them, strangely, would prefer her to a second Trump presidency. But I thought Trump was a good thing for Wall Street in the sense that his administration is seen as anti-regulation, anti-red tape, liberalisation, lots of things that banks like. Yeah, so there were two great hopes for the Trump presidency uh, from Wall Street. And they sort of led to this, you know, this very dramatic rise in bank stocks immediately after the election. They sort of rose by almost a quarter in the three months following Trump's election. And those two hopes were, uh, firstly, that you'd get a big corporate tax cut, which you have got. And that was widely desired and very well received. Um, And the second hope was that he would roll back a lot of the post-crisis regulation, in particular, that there would be curtailing of Dodd-Frank. I think he promised to tear it up at one point. Um, And that second hope has been more disappointed. Um, There was a sort of timid rollback of Dodd-Frank in 2017. um, And banks don't necessarily expect there to be much more. So obviously, they've had this benefit, which is that taxes have been reduced. But there have been some potentially unexpected costs that have come with the Trump presidency. The prolonged shutdown earlier this year was particularly bad for their advisory businesses. So, you know, mergers and acquisitions are a big source of revenues at Wall Street banks. And they were really hurt by the sort of prolonged shutdown. At the same time, The trade war has been not great for volatility in the stock market, and that seems to have hurt some of their trading businesses. And thirdly, and this is the risk that people sort of dwell on longest, is the idea that if Trump got a second term, you might see someone sort of mad put in charge of the Fed. And that is that non-linear uncertainty. You have no idea what that might mean for the US economy and for banks that they seem most afraid of. So it's not so much what he's done for Wall Street. It's rather he hasn't done enough for Wall Street and they regard the rest of his economic management as a bit of a disaster area. They've kind of got what they wanted from the tax cut and they don't see a great hope that his second term would bring many more benefits for them. And on the contrary, there would be these enormous risks. And Elizabeth Warren may be seen as 
tolerable now, if you like, a, a quantifiable risk by Wall Street. But is she really seen as a credible contender, somebody who could take on Donald Trump and beat him in the polls? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that is the sort of area of expertise for uh, the um, Wall Street executives. And most seem to say that they actually think that Donald Trump would win a second term, almost irrespective of who the opposing candidate is. But certainly, she seems to be doing okay in the polls for the Democratic primary so far. Alice, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. You can read more on this in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, David Orter is a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His work has focused on how America's labour market has been disrupted, both by technology and by China's rise as an economic power. He spoke to Money Talks in the first of a new series of profiles of leading economists. When my now wife and I met, we just took a walk in North Berkeley one day. We saw this pair of gecko earrings. We said, oh, those are so cool. And we each put one on. More men had earrings back then and I had longer hair, <laughs> more hair. I was going to give a, a job talk at Harvard Business School and one of my classmates said to me, are you going to wear that to your HBS job talk? And I thought... Well, look, if, if that's disqualifying, then I guess I don't want to work there. Not disqualifying, I was offered a job at Harvard Business School, which I very much appreciated, but I took the job at MIT. And then once I was here, the students really kind of locked onto it. I would be the guy with this huge silver you know, lizard hanging from his ear, and people gave me gecko things. And so eventually I decided to kind of adopt it. Now I have, like, a, you know, on my phone or on the back of my car, you'll see a gecko. But <laughs> I, I didn't intend to brand myself, but uh, it eventually became associated. I discovered computers when I was in middle school, which was unusual at that time. I took an interest in programming, and I thought I was going to do computer stuff. Uh, I did a, a variety of things, but I, the, the main thing I did was I dropped out after three semesters. <laughs> I decided I wanted to do psychology. I was very interested in well-being and, and mental health and, and things that made the world better for people who were suffering. I didn't feel like the sort of research side of it was, that the questions were super good, but I didn't think the answers were that compelling. So I ended up just doing volunteer work at this computer learning center, you know, had money from Silicon Valley and volunteers from Silicon Valley, and we were working with a pretty disadvantaged adult and child population. It felt like it was part of a movement in the sense that we were trying to address a specific social problem, but on a larger scale than the individual level. We were trying to do it through education, through technology transfer. I knew a lot of our donors and so on were, you know, people who had been super successful in the early wave of the personal computer industry. And then our students were people who their skills were not current for how the world was changing. Not only did they not have computer skills, but computers were arguably doing some of the things they would have been doing. In other words, directly, you know, doing a lot of the kind of repetitive labor that might have been valuable in an earlier period. And so I was very struck by how the world was changing. And I felt like on the one hand, technology was magnifying the importance of people's skills and allowing people with talent to accomplish ever larger things. At the same time, I felt it was crowding out opportunities for people who were sort of not as high in the skill food chain, so to speak. While I was a graduate student at the Kennedy School, a question that was really in the air was how are computers changing the labor market? I felt like computers, it's not, it wasn't the computer skills per se that were valuable. 
if you were creative or had a new idea for how to accomplish a task or even just good at design or uh, good at music, that computers could dramatically enhance your productivity and your reach. At the same time, I felt like simultaneously, if you were doing repetitive stuff that's well described by a set of steps that we could automate, that it was potentially displacing. I remember one very fateful conversation where Frank Levy came and he said, you know, think about a job as like, you know, the number of steps. And so how many steps it would take to code that up uh, with software. And we could describe the complexity of work in terms of how many lines of code you'd have to write. Dick and I said, no, no, <laughs> that's not right. Because for a computer, you could write a simple program that can solve pi to an infinite number of places. And that would be incredibly hard for a person. On the other hand, there are many things that we do, like, you know, you can you know take out your trash and drive your car and recognize people who you haven't seen for years. And they take no effort at all. And it would be incredibly hard to get a computer to do that. The things that we were good at using computers at at, the, at that time, and this is changing, is things that follow a well-understood set of rules and procedures. And so we can script them game of chess or checkers, but that there are many things that we know how to do things that we could not explicitly explain to you how we do them. If you couldn't write down the rules, you couldn't get a computer to do it because it didn't have either common sense or inductive reasoning to figure out what you didn't tell it. At the time that this discussion about computers in the labor market was going on, it was in the context of very rapid rises in earnings inequality which you know, a lot of economists were you know, aware of. And there was a, an open debate about what were the causes. Just as the profession reached consensus that globalization had not had a very large effect on the U.S. labor market over the last couple of decades, the facts changed just as people were closing the books on that debate. The fact that changed was China's rise, which was enormously consequential for China for much of the world and also had a big effect on U.S. manufacturing, although that was not known at the time. I think our expectations were pretty modest. The conventional wisdom, and we didn't have any reason to disbelieve it, was that there would just be a lot of reallocation. And so workers would move from, you know, manufacturing to non-manufacturing. They'd move across locations. And, you know, our, the received understanding is that uh, the U.S. labor market is very flexible. We didn't expect to find, <laughs> you know, carnage <laughs> where this had occurred. And, uh, and so we were, we were startled by the size of the adjustment cost, as you might say. We were very surprised by how concentrated the costs were, how deep they were, and how little they seemed to diffuse across space. There was 150 million workers in the U.S. labor market. Let's say you you say, you know, somewhat expansively, 3 million manufacturing workers in net lost employment because of rising China trade pressure between, you know, 1995 and 2007. 3 million out of 150 million is a small number. That shouldn't be a big deal. But in every part of the world where manufacturing occurs, it's very geographically concentrated. Cars are not produced in every every county in America. There are a lot of them produced in, you know, in Detroit or in parts of the South. It's not just that manufacturing is concentrated, but specific goods are, you know, intensively produced in just a few places. And so when China burst onto the scene with much lower price goods of pretty high quality, that had very, very concentrated impacts in the few locations that were active in those goods. And the net result was that those concentrated impacts didn't tend to diffuse very far. Instead, they tended to lead to a lot of concentrated pain. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't also benefits to trade in terms of reducing consumer prices, increasing variety. But in terms of the locations of immediate impact, there was a lot of concentrated cost. 
there was skepticism, and I think some of it was somewhat, you know, ideological, or at least came from strong priors about how the world is supposed to work. But ultimately, I think it was highly constructive, and the profession's response to it has been very constructive. I consider myself to be just incredibly fortunate, the luckiest person in the profession. I don't have a PhD in economics. <laughs> my PhD is from the Kennedy School in Public Policy. People have taken my work seriously, despite the fact that I came out a bit unwashed. <laughs> I was also very fortunate to enter economics at a time when the profession was really changing from a focus on high theory and very, very tightly structured views of the world that didn't admit a lot of uh, deviation to one where the field has become much more empirical and one in which we look at cause and effect and are willing to accept the facts if they're well demonstrated and then try to interpret them. You have to take your results and accept them and sort of try to understand them. You can't simply reject them because they don't, they're not consistent with what your expectations were. That has allowed economics to become much broader in the set of questions it's going to tackle and the set of results it's able to take on board. In my very peripatetic professional career, I saw both the benefits, the gains, but also the painful adaptations and complexities of the way the world was changing for people at different points in the skill ladder. And I've always been particularly attuned to the opportunities for less educated adults and kids. That perspective is welcome in economics, I think, in a way that it was not historically the questions that I've worked on, people have found those answers, I think, interesting and useful and, and helpful for informing the way we structure our own thinking about how the world works and, and how we can do a better job in making sure it works well for more people. Our thanks to David Orter. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. And finally, are you the kind of person who always has some cash on you? A rumpled note or a few coins in the bottom of your pocket? Or have you waved goodbye to physical money in favor of apps and bank cards? In Sweden, cash payments have fallen by 80% in the past 10 years. And across the world, mobile money and apps like WeChat Pay and Alipay have opened up mobile payments to millions who previously relied entirely on cash. But how do people feel about this change? We asked some of them across the world how going cashless has changed their lives. From New York. I don't use cash. When was the last time? That I used cash to pay for something? Yeah. I can't even remember. I mean, right. this is my wallet. It, it hasn't moved. To London. It's easier to spend money because you can't budget. Because you, you're touching your card all the time and you don't realise how much you're spending. So I think young people especially are going to find that quite tough. They're not going to realise that those three pounds on a coffee every day add up. And last to Shanghai. You haven't used cash for three years? So if cash disappeared, you wouldn't be sad about it? No. Do you even have a purse? Do you have a wallet? No, I don't carry a wallet. 
Mathieu Favard is The Economist's finance correspondent. He's been looking into the pros and cons of going cashless. Hello, Mathieu. Hello, Simon. Firstly, the trend seems unstoppable, but is it, broadly speaking, a good one? I guess it's fair to say that overall, the advantages of going cashless are very big indeed and very substantial. First of all, cash as a system or as an infrastructure is quite costly and pretty inefficient. I've seen various studies in various countries, but it seems that overall, handling, storing and distributing cash costs about 0.5% of GDPs, which is quite a big amount. So being able to do without cash obviously will benefit all people who have to bear this cost, which typically tends to be the banks, the shops, and eventually the consumers. I suppose it differs from country to country. Here in the UK, contactless cards seem to be becoming ubiquitous, but it's not like that around the world, right? That's right. And that's the reason why in various countries, cashlessness is progressing at various speeds. For example, Norway, I think it's 11% of transactions that are still being done in cash. The UK, it's still a third. And the reason why this is different is because different countries have uh, implemented different systems. Um, Typically, these systems have been pushed by banks or private companies. So in the case of Sweden, for example, banks have come together and built a system called Swish, which allows for direct transfers between bank accounts. In the UK, the arrival of contactless has also done a great deal to push cashlessness. Um, In other countries, it's been a bit harder, a bit slower to push for cashlessness. I've just come back from China, where Alipay and WeChat, as we mentioned, have taken over payments as far as it seems. There's some places that far prefer taking mobile payments through those apps than taking cash. But what about the other huge country, India, when they demonetized some of the large notes a few years ago, it seemed to cause enormous hardship. How is that progressing? That's right. I think if you look at emerging markets, outliers of China has gone very far indeed. So we chat Alipay. If you add up the total of non-cash payments that the country did in 2017, it equals the GDP of America and uh, Japan combined. So it, it really is very big. And Kenya and Bangladesh have developed also a very good system, like M-Pesa, some mobile wallets. They've done a great deal at monetizing or digitizing a few of these payments. But typically in emerging uh, markets, cash remains king. And India is a good example. And I think there are various reasons from technology to access to banking services and also um, broadband connectivity is a big limit if you have to pay by phone and you don't have internet. But also a big factor is the size of the shadow economy, which relies uh, entirely on cash. Indeed, but that's one reason for introducing cashlessness, isn't it, to curb the illegal grey economy? That's uh, been seen as being a very good thing. Indeed, you can trace where and who makes payments. Proponents of mobile money always like to say that it's far more secure than cash. It's far harder to rob people of it. But there must be disadvantages too. I mean, supposing a mobile network goes down. Exactly, yes. Especially if cash disappears, then you won't have any alternative to make payments. Last year, the bridge that links Wales to England which you pay by using a Visa card to get on it. And got some major troubles when uh, the system broke down for, I think, at least a day. And there was no other way to pay for the bridge. So people who had not prepared for this or found themselves stranded at the entrance of the bridge. There's another risk too, isn't there? It's that although some of these services look very cheap, like M-Pesa or Bcash, or absolutely free, like Alipay and WeChat, people are actually paying with their data, aren't they? It's like other online services that you're, you're giving away an awful lot of information about yourself for nothing. A number of these services are free precisely because the way to monetize them for 
the providers is to monetize the data. And in a number of countries, people are aware of it and not so bothered about it. So, for example, if you take Estonia in, in Europe, Estonia, which is described often as the first e-state because a lot of public services are provided digitally, people are very open to sharing their data. But in other countries, you know, for example, Germany is relatively late in going cashless. You might expect that perhaps this is a factor. People are not really willing to give away their privacy. And are there still left behind people, the elderly, for example, who are just reluctant to move away from their traditional ways of spending their money? I guess you could say perhaps three groups. One is the elderly. Uh, Second is probably the poor who tend to budget in cash. And there are fears that if the economy goes cashless, they will get into more debt and face more troubles. And thirdly is people who live in remote areas where you may not have access to ATMs anymore because ATMs are closing down, bank branches as well. And these remote communities may find themselves cut off from the economy. Mathieu, finally, do you yourself carry cash? I have a a little bit of it here on me, yes, just in case, because there's nothing worse than being stranded without any cash. Mathieu, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist. Economist.